Our God, we know that you are great and perfect and holy and good. And in the light of your greatness and goodness, we know our own selves uh, to be proud and um, full of all kinds of um, inconsistencies and burdens, uh, things that we carry with us even here today. Father, we confess those before you. We pray now that as we hear your word and as we reflect on your wonderful character and what you have done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, that you might both do that hard work of opening our own hearts and revealing the depths of our own sin and need, um, but not finish there, uh, that you might go on from there and fill us with the good news of your grace to us in Christ. And that that might be a deeply transforming reality for each of us today. Lord, we pray as we hear this psalm, both read and taught and proclaimed, that by your spirit you'll take your word and work it deeply into each of our lives. And we pray that for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. This is God's word to us this morning, friends, Psalm 131. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. Amen. Thanks, Jeff. Okay, well, uh, thanks, Duncan. Um, it is lovely to be with you today. As uh, Duncan mentioned, I also am a guest here this morning. I'm one of the ministers uh, up at Trinity City uh, in, uh, up in Adelaide, uh, down here for the weekend, so it's a great opportunity to be able to open God's Word with you. Uh, can I ask you please to grab a Bible if you don't have one and open it up? As you saw, it's a very short reading. Uh, maybe if it's helpful also, I'll get um, Karen just to leave the slide on the screen with the passage there, because the whole thing fits on one screen. Who would have thought, hey? Uh, and inside your leaflet to take out uh, the inside cover where you'll see <laughs> an outline that is longer than the reading itself. Um, but it'll help you make sense of what I'm going to talk about this morning. Uh, Duncan said before that uh, as a church you're about to start a series thinking about prayer and what it means to be a people who are prayerful in every way and we thought that a good intro to that would be just to reflect on a prayer from the Bible which is this prayer here in Psalm 131. Um, if you're not familiar with the Bible the Psalm is this very large section in the middle uh, which is a series of songs or prayers of God's people uh, from the Old Testament so this is uh, in the time of Israel uh, one of the challenges we have with the Psalms is that sometimes people can't work out how do they apply to us today because they're songs that are nearly two and a half thousand years old speaking about a situation at a time that feels very different. Uh, you'll see there at the top of the handout that I've written that I think the key to the Psalms is to try and work out what they tell us what God is like uh, first and foremost not what we should do um, what God is like 
not what we should do. And I've given a couple of reasons there. Uh, if you do it that way around, it helps us avoid the trap of moralism, that is, trying to think that we have to repeat everything in the Psalms when, to be really blunt, we don't live in Israel 500 years before Christ. Um, it, secondly, it enables us then, if we're looking for what it says about what God is like, to see how Jesus is the fullest revelation of God. Uh, and thirdly, the reason why I've done it this way is hopefully to give you confidence to read some of the 150 Psalms for yourself and to be able to see how God is speaking you to, to you today. So what God is like, not what we should do first and foremost. And you'll see there underneath the outline, I want to say uh, for a few minutes this morning, what Psalm 131 tells us about God. Uh, how Psalm 131 points us to Jesus, and then finally, uh, what Psalm 131 might ask of us today. Okay, so that's the plan for this morning. Why don't I read the psalm again? I'm going to indulge myself here because there's only three verses, okay? Let me read it again, and then we'll get started. A song of ascents of David. My heart is not proud, Lord, my eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I've calmed and quieted myself. I'm like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. So Israel, put your hope in the Lord both now and forevermore. Uh, well, when people are asked to, des to describe what they think God is like, they often come up with stereotypical and extreme but wrong images. At one end, there's the picture of God, uh, at least as some people think of, the God of the Bible who is perceived to be angry and wrathful, full of vengeance, thunder and lightning. At the other extreme, uh, you have pictures, again, caricatures and not entirely right, but of God of being sort of a, like a doting grandfatherly type uh, with lots of photos of his grandkids on his mantelpiece, uh, sort of like a genie in a bottle uh, who grants wishes on demand. You recognise both of those pictures? Uh, you might have heard them, you might even think something of them. And then we come to the image in Psalm 131, where God is described as being like a mother with a weaned child. A mother with a weaned child. Now, whatever you think of that particular image, clearly it's meant to portray some sense of uh, security, of calm and quiet, of peacefulness. But I have to say, as a parent of three children, it's a very strange image. Now, my children are teenagers, uh, but if someone had said to me that the picture of a weaned child with its mother being one of great contentment, I would have asked them if they'd ever had children of their own. Because, to me, a weaned child at least sounds like a toddler. And uh, I don't know about you, but I have not many toddlers who I would describe as serene or tranquil. Rather, the kind of words that I at least would attribute to my children when they were toddlers were, were the code words that we use were things like, oh, he's very energetic, uh, which is just a nice way of saying hyperactive, uh, or... She is very expressive, which is a polite way of saying, does she ever shut up? <laughs> but the image in Psalm 131, God, like a mother with a toddler, is content. 
What's the psalmist trying to get at? Well, perhaps the image is uh, in contrast with that of a newborn, a toddler as opposed to a newborn. Now, I guess, at least in some circumstances, a toddler, a weaned child, can be reasoned with, not always effectively, but can be reasoned with, unlike a brand new baby. A toddler, well, you could feed them solids, so they might sleep for a little longer. There is at least the possibility that a weaned child might be satisfied and content. But however the image actually works, the picture is meant to be very soothing, isn't it? In fact, you notice it in the way in which Duncan read the psalm at such a gentle, easy pace. And you would have noticed there that in just three verses, the psalmist chooses to repeat one of the lines twice. It kind of focuses your attention, doesn't it? Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child, I am content. I wonder if the repetition is kind of like a breathing exercise. It's meant to slow you down. Well, Psalm 131 is a song of ascents. You notice that at the top in the heading there, a song of ascents uh, of David. A bit of background to explain what that means. Uh, the Song of Ascents were a collection of psalms that ran from Psalm 120 through 135. Uh, they were songs that the Israelites were to sing as they quite literally ascended up to the temple. So this collection of 15 psalms, uh, 16 psalms, the whole company would sing as they made their way up to temple, as they made their way up to meet with the Lord. Uh, the modern-day equivalent would be these were the songs that you would have on your playlist as you drove to church this morning. The kinds of things to get you in the mood to gather with God's people in the presence of our God. But we're told in this psalm that it's actually a song of a sense of David. Of David, uh, the king. Uh, as you would know, if you know anything about the, the Bible, David is one of the early kings of Israel, uh, clearly the greatest king in the history of the nation. We're told that it's a song of a sense of him. Now, that might mean that it's written by him. It might mean that it's written for him. But either way, it adds an interesting twist to the psalm, doesn't it? It's a psalm that's talked about the songwriter being like a weaned child in its mother's arms, and this is the king talking. It's a bit unusual, isn't it, for a king to self-identify as like a weaned child, doesn't feel particularly regal or strong or powerful. But I think the point is that if even the king can be like a weaned child in its mother's arms before God, if even the king can do that, surely you and I can relax a little. Not that our worry or concern will change anything anyway. In verse 1 then, when David says, My heart is not proud, Lord, my eyes are not haughty, I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me, uh, I don't think it's saying that the king doesn't care about important things. Uh, actually, it's right for the king to care about the affairs of state, about terrorism and climate change and global recession. Those are things that it's right for the king of the nation to have a view on. 
but we're being told that he chooses not to be overwhelmed by them. He is confident that his God has it under control. So maybe a better image in Psalm 131 than of a child, a weaned child being in its mother's arms, maybe a better image for us uh, is to think about uh, the image of a feudal baron. You know, this particular image, this is uh, from medieval times where in a fiefdom there would be a baron who was lord over his area. Uh, He would have a bunch of, now this is not used pejoratively, a bunch of peasants who would just get on with life. They would do what they had always done. They wouldn't worry about the big questions. What crops do we plant this year? Should we go to war or not? They'd just get on with their life, confident that their Lord, he'd make all the important decisions. And so for the average person, there is a great freedom It's not saying that ignorance is bliss, but it is saying, I don't need to worry if someone else will sort it out. Particularly if that someone is God himself. Which brings me to the picture that I printed there for you on your handout. Uh, You'll be well familiar with this picture. It's a very famous picture. Keep calm and carry on. Now, does anyone know where this comes from? It's not a rhetorical question. Anyone? England during the war. England during the war, that's right. So um, what happened was, uh, at the start of World War II, uh, the English were aware that the Germans would, at some point, launch a bombardment of England. Uh, And so what the English government did was they prepared a campaign to enable uh, the citizens of England to not be overwhelmed when the Blitz began. Keep calm and carry on, said in a very stiff upper lip kind of English way. Now, uh, I speak particularly at this point to, shall I say, the younger people here. You will know that this very famous uh, marketing campaign has given rise to a plethora of memes. If you don't know what a meme is, this is basically just a way in which people try and take an old thing and reappropriate it to their context in a way that they think is funny, although for most of us, we don't quite get it. Uh, so. I did some research for this talk. Uh, Things like, um, you see versions of this floating around on the internet. Instead of keep calm and carry on, keep calm and use logic. Keep calm and eat chocolate. I suppose that's a timeless response really, isn't it? Uh, Keep calm and hug a unicorn. I, I had no idea what that meant, but such a famous phrase that gives rise to modern attempts to reappropriate it. Of course, the problem with each of those things, I mean, apart from the fact that I don't think they're funny, but the problem with each of them is that none of them give you a reason why you ought to keep calm. Not really. So look at the picture in the original. Keep calm and carry on. There's a graphic at the top. It's a picture of the crown. Because the way in which the picture works is it says you can be calm because the king has it sorted out. He'll take care of you. And what it tries to do is it tries to shift our attention away from ourselves towards someone or something that can actually exercise control. 
Now, the contrast with each of those other memes that I talked about, they're all about what we ought to do. Keep calm and use logic. It implies a self-help kind of response. Uh, Keep calm and eat chocolate. Well, that's just about denial, really, isn't it? Keep calm and hug a unicorn. That really just says fantasise about something that's better, even though deep down you know you can't do anything about it. Keep calm and carry on because someone with power is in control. To give you a different example, you probably are aware of the fact that for most of history it wasn't safe to travel. For most of history it wasn't safe to travel. Now, of course, we can't even comprehend that these days. You choose to go virtually anywhere in the world and the thought of personal safety, apart from in a few isolated places, doesn't even cross our mind. But for most of history, it was unsafe to leave your village because if you went somewhere else, there was a good chance that you would be attacked. That applied especially to women and to children. So you never moved them. Do you know what changed it? What changed it was the Roman Empire. Because as the Roman Empire expanded over the world... One of the things that it did was it made international travel safe. Why? Well, because you knew that if you ever harmed a citizen of Rome, the entire weight of the Roman Empire would come crashing down on you and your kind. And that certainty, that conviction, was what made travel possible. How is it that you can be content? Well, not because of anything that we do, but because of what another makes possible. And so it brings me then to the final thing I want to say about what Psalm 131 tells us about God. You'll notice at the top of your handout that I've called this talk The God Who Protects. Now, I could have called it The God Who Relieves Our Stress, because that, I think, is one of the implications. But if I did that, it would highlight our experience, not what our God is like. The only basis on which we can be content, the only basis on which we can relax, is founded in his protection, in what he is like. He is worthy of our trust, not just now, but forevermore. Verse 3, Israel Put your hope in the Lord, both now and forever. Well, there are a few reflections on what Psalm 131 tells us about God. Let me talk more briefly then about how it points us to Jesus and then finally what it might ask of us today. One of the lovely things about reading and rereading the Psalms, this ancient songbook, is that they point towards Jesus uh, in so many different ways. There are so many, and on rereading, you see different connections. I've chosen just one for us this morning. It's the connection that's drawn, I think, with Matthew chapter 11, the passage of which I've printed there on your handout. So if you have a look with me, Matthew chapter 11, verse 27, this is Jesus speaking. Listen to what he says. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. See, the reason why Jesus can offer us protection, the basis on which Jesus brings us peace, is because of who he is. He is God the Father's Son. And that means that when he speaks or when he acts, he speaks or acts with all the authority of his heavenly Father. If Jesus offers protection, he is offering the protection that God the Father can give. No wonder then he can insist in the second half of that passage that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Now, but the other lovely thing that we see in Matthew chapter 11 is that Jesus is also the model of humility. He is the one who shows us what it means to rest in another's strength. Hard though that is for all of us who long to be self-made men and women. Jesus, he is the one who shows us what it means to rest in another's strength. Verse 29 there, Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for my souls. Well, what Psalm 131 says about God, how it points us towards Jesus, finally then, what does Psalm 131 ask of you and us, you and me today? Let me ask you a question. My question is this. What do you do to calm and quiet yourself? Just think about the answer in your head for a moment. When you need to, what do you do to calm and quiet yourself? When you're stressed, when you're anxious, when, and I say this with a, a wry smile on my face looking around the room, when the school holidays are just starting and you're looking at two weeks ahead of you, what do you do to calm and quiet yourself. Let me give you some possibilities. You might be someone who engages in breathing exercises. <sighs> Just breathe a bit slower. You might be one of those very, very strange people in the world who decide that when they're stressed, they'll go for a run. Now, why? Like, that makes no sense to me whatsoever, but I understand that for some people, that's the way in which they calm and quiet themselves. Maybe you're someone who puts headphones in, tunes out to some music. Maybe when you're anxious and stressed, you calm and quiet yourself by binging on Netflix. Maybe you're the kind of person who, when you're anxious, what you do is you write more to-do lists. In fact, your dream is of the one to-do list that will rule them all one day, that you will eventually come up with, you tick everything off and everything will be all fine. Maybe you try to take time out. You try to disconnect, turn off the technology. Now, even if you wanted to do that, I realise that it's very hard to go offline these days. It's very hard to have a complete technological detox. 
It is almost impossible in today's day and age to switch off completely, to choose not to know what's going on. Which means, of course, that we're constantly inundated with all the cares and worries that too much information brings. And yet, Psalm 131 is elegantly blunt. It says the only way you get to experience the wonder of verses 1 and 2, the wonder then in those first two verses of being like a weaned child with its mother before God, the only way you get to experience that state is by verse 3. By putting your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. The only way you get to have that wonderful experience of being content is to be confident that someone with much better qualifications has it all under control. In the end, the whole reason why a weaned child can be calm and quiet, unconcerned by great matters, is because it's 100% certain that its parent will look after it. The only alternative is that you bear those burdens yourself. So to return to that image one last time from Psalm 131, what's stopping you from coming to Jesus like a little child? Especially when you know that you're not in control and when you know that Jesus promises rest. What's stopping you? Is it not pride? Is it not the lure of independence, the dream of self-reliance? Is it not that deep-seated wish to be captain of your destiny, beholden to none? And yet, can I say this, brothers and sisters, if you could sort it out yourself, you would have no need for Christ and for his benefits. So today, I want to finish by urging you to learn this lesson as soon as you can. Because the sooner you learn it, the longer you will benefit from it. I printed there for you a final verse. It's from 1 Peter 5. I'm going to read it in just a moment, but before we do, I thought I'd tell you a bit about my story. Uh, I um, actually grew up going to university in Sydney, um, uh, where Duncan and Miriam went. Uh, but you can tell, obviously, from, well, just listening to me, that I'm sort of Asian. That is, I look Chinese, but I sound pre pretty Australian. And that's because my parents immigrated from overseas and, uh, like many immigrant parents, wanted the best for their kids and so made enormous sacrifices for me and my younger sister when we were going through high school. Uh, at great cost, they enabled us to go to one of the elite private, to elite, uh, to separate elite private schools in Sydney. And as often is the case with uh, immigrant parents, they had very high dreams for their children, that their children might have better lives than they did. That's, after all, why they were able to immigrate in the first place. 
What that kind of meant was that by the time I got to the end of high school, there was significant pressure and expectation uh, on me about both academic success and then for the rest of my life, how I might do well, do better than my parents had done. I was very grateful for their support, for their opportunity. But I think it's fair to say that by the time I got to my final exams, I was a little bit nervous about what might happen if things didn't turn out the way in which at least my parents wanted. I remember on the first day of my final exams, because I'm old enough to come from a time where you still actually had exams, you didn't just get to write, you know, feelings, pieces to pass. Sorry, that's a bit rude, but... I've got teenage kids, that's what it appears to me they do these days in high school. Anyway, that's a separate matter. I actually had exams, so I go to my final exams, and I remember turning up to my final exam, uh, first day of final exams, and another fellow who must have known that I was a Christian, although, to be honest, I'd never communicated that to anyone. I was a young believer, I wasn't particularly open about my faith. But I still remember Simon, who came up to me just before we go, went to, into these exams, and he handed me a piece of paper. On which was written 1 Peter chapter 5. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. To this day, I still remember that moment on which I read this tiny piece of paper about to go into the first of my final exams and understanding with a clarity that I never had before that Jesus cares for me. That's what he does. My privilege and response is to hand my cares over to him. All my burdens, all my anxieties. And I think I can honestly say that, that clearly was a number of years ago, that conviction has been one of the things that shaped who I am today. It's by no means perfectly played out in my life, but that conviction has helped me to avoid paralysis in decision-making. It's sustained me in times of disappointment and it's enabled me to understand that any suffering that I experience in this life, no matter how real it might be, is only temporary. Because Jesus loves me and cares for me. And what I often say to the university students who I work with, don't leave learning that lesson until your deathbed. Learn it now that you might have the entire life ahead of you to rest in our Father's comfort. Let me finish with a final thought. Uh, this church was planted two and a half years ago, three and a half years ago, three and a half years ago, man. It was planted three and a half years ago uh, with the goal of being part of that great commission of reaching people all over the world, but particularly here in the South Coast with the good news about the gospel. That's the whole reason why the church began. I want to say to you that to the members of this church, the image of Psalm 131, I think, is a powerful tonic for those around us. 
This image of being like a weaned child in our mother's arms, in God's arms, is an image that gives freedom. Freedom and security in a world that desperately needs to know it. Now, it's a complicated image, as I've talked about. I realise, of course, that most children can't wait to grow up. Sometimes parents harshly lament to their children, oh, why don't you just grow up? But here's my reflection. Deep down, most adults wish that they were children again without all those cares and worries? Now, Psalm 131 isn't advocating a juvenile kind of immaturity. Rather, I think what it's describing is the wonderful liberty that's found in Christ alone of being free from overwhelming worry like a little child because you know that your parent has it all sorted out. And it seems to me that that surely must be an attractive proposition in our stressed-out culture. I lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you have done for us and given us in the Lord Jesus. We recognise that in ourselves it is hard to accept that at times. So we pray, remind us even this day of how much you care for us that we might cast all our anxieties on you. Amen.